Hello, I'm Bruce Malcolm, and this is Denise Malcolm. We're proud to share with you this podcast series, Keeping Kids Safe, a Bright Futures podcast by the Daniel Malcolm Foundation. Each episode will feature practical insights on how to teach your child safety in our world today. We will help parents and carers understand and navigate the challenging world of child sexual abuse. What child sexual abuse is, the behaviours and signs to be wary of, and how to respond if you are worried about this with children you know. Our host, Walkley Award-winning journalist Nance Haxon, will talk with survivors, parents, leading researchers and professionals working on the front line in this area to give you the tools and resources you need. It's time for difficult conversations on this hidden topic. This podcast talks openly about child abuse, child sexual abuse, child sexual exploitation and harmful sexual behaviours. We are aware the content raised in this podcast series may be triggering by some listeners. There are links in our show notes for organisations that can support you. Please feel free to take a breather when you need it. Today on Keeping Kids Safe, a Bright Futures podcast for the Daniel Morcom Foundation, we're speaking with Chanel Contos, the founder of Teach Us Consent and author of the book Consent Laid Bare. She was the main speaker at the Daniel Morcom Foundation's Bright Futures New South Wales Forum on October 16, which focused on how to prevent harmful sexual behaviours in educational settings. In this episode, Chanel tells us how her groundbreaking research on consent, started by an Instagram post during the pandemic, has paved the way for significant reform in Australia's education system. Largely thanks to Chanel's awareness raising, calling for consent education to be included in the national curriculum, in February last year, ministers of education from around Australia unanimously committed to holistic and age-appropriate consent education at every school in every year from kindy through to year 10 starting this year. And now Chanel commutes regularly to Australia from London where Julia Gillard recently appointed her as chair of the Global Institute for Women's Leadership Youth Advisory Committee. Such as Chanel's influence, she is about to speak at the National Press Club on November 1. She tells me how she achieved so much in the vexed area of consent in so little time and how much further she thinks Australia has to go. Chanel, thank you so much for coming in straight from the plane in London. This is the, the amazing Chanel Contos and how lucky are we to have you here today. So Chanel, firstly, can we take us back? Back to February 2021, when you posted an Instagram story asking followers if they or someone close to them had been sexually assaulted by someone when they were at school. Do you think you had any inkling of what would come from that? Absolutely not in any way, shape or form. Um, my intention when I posted that story was, my, my selfish intention was for the boys who did these things to me and my friends to take a good look at themselves in the mirror and then my wider intention was for my old school and the kind of like nearby schools that we all grew up with to start teaching consent education um and then it obviously is a issue that goes much beyond Sydney much beyond the private school scene and I think once I started getting testimonies from places outside of this sphere I was like well this is a national issue we should make it a national campaign um, and then that's when the Teachers Consent website was born with the 
message to mandate consent education in the national curriculum? I mean, I certainly remember it being a Brisbane-based person. It's like your face was just a shining light of hope in a COVID bleak world. So uh, I certainly remember the impact that it had Australia-wide, as you said. Uh, but were you shocked by that response? I think it was within 24 hours, even in that initial stage, more than 200 people had replied yes and gave you perhaps an insight into what was coming, that it, there was a wave coming from there. Yeah, so it was interesting. So I, I posted an Instagram story, which only stays up for 24 hours. And mm. in that time, over 200 people said yes to this response. I also asked people if they would sign a petition. And I also asked people, would you be willing to submit testimonies to back up this petition? I think that's why it hit a nerve with so many people to read these very personal testimonies about how consent could have prevented those instances for happening, consent education or consent education could have meant that people would have seeked help earlier, hopefully preventing further ongoing harm. And it was really interesting because when I posted the first few testimonies, they just like trickled in, like one would come in every like kind of hour or two hours. And then once I had posted about 20 of them, they came in quicker than I could like physically read them or even check them in my Instagram. So the official numbers on the website is, I think it's 6,600 or something like that. But those are only what we read, reviewed for defamation and posted. But I'm so convinced there are thousands in my Instagram DMs that I never even saw. Mm. And then, as you mentioned, that, that led to the Teachers Consent website, that petition that you launched, 44,000 signatures and more than 6,600 stories of sexual assault. Did that volume even surprise you, even though you had some idea of the extent of what you'd started? I think everyone in this room knows that the true numbers of sexual violence in Australia are much higher than that. And I don't know about everyone, but I also think we have we underestimate how prevalent this problem is because people don't even understand what constitutes the sexual violence enough to be able to say that it had happened to them. But I was really surprised and heartwarmed by how many people were willing to put those intimate stories on a public platform. That was, I think, very surprising to me. I didn't think it would have that sort of um, effect, although I did know that, of course, this violence was something that was experienced quite universally across Australia, unfortunately. And I think it indicates, too, that this had been bubbling underneath the surface, the surface for so long, but sometimes it takes someone to speak out to be the catalyst for that change, do you think? Yeah, I think, I think what Teachers' Consent did was... And also... People don't know this because it was anonymous, but the first testimony I posted was actually my own testimony. And I think it was the mundaneness of the testimony that made people feel so confident to say that their mundane testimony had happened to them too, because I think these be this behaviour has been so normalised to us and that's such a key factor in this. And I think especially women, but also young boys as well, in this kind of like peer-on-peer -peer teenage sexual abuse it's become something that we're kind of told we're very dramatic if we speak up about it or that it's not like important enough or not bad enough or like other stories are worse or more extreme. But I think the fact that it gave people the confidence to say just because this is an, an explicit, like explicitly violent form of sexual abuse, that doesn't mean that it's okay and it doesn't mean that I can't say something about it, which... Yeah, I think it kind of like cracked that market a little bit, which is why it was so explosive. <laughs> and the petition, of course, that led to these stories, 
uh, being presented to MPs around the country and uh, ad you were advocating for consent education to be included in the national curriculum. Part of the reason that we're here today because in February last year, 2022, not that long ago, uh, ministers of education from around Australia unanimously committed to holistic and age-appropriate consent education in every school, in every year from kindy through to year 10 starting this year. Did you think you would achieve that? I never get sick of hearing that sentence being said, <laughs> um, but no, I, oh, I, no, yes and no. No, I didn't think when it happened, but as soon as the campaign got momentum and I saw how many people were behind it and how responsive that politicians were being and how responsive Akara was being, I was like absolutely hell-bent that this was going to happen. <laughs> so from, I guess, yeah, a few months into the petition, I was like, I'm not going to stop until this happens, but it was still, I feel like I still haven't fully processed that that's been the result. How do you think it was made possible? Was it that you really contextualised this so clearly, I think, with that teacher's consent, that it wasn't just this is happening, but this is the response needed, maybe? Yeah, I think it was... It gave light to a large problem that, again, I know everyone in this room is very familiar with, but a lot of, like, you know, average Australians aren't, so it should... It shone a light on that problem, but it also always came with a solution from the very beginning. And I think also, again, this type of sexual violence that and also when I started this campaign I actually never even registered in my head that this was a form of child sexual abuse on another being perpetrated by another child because when you're 16 you don't really think of yourself as a child you think you're like an adult and all grown up and whatever um and I think the fact that there was just this overwhelming commitment from a lot of Australians and politicians that this was just in no way shape or form okay and it came with a solution that addressed, again, this very specific type of sexual violence. I don't think consent education in the Australian curriculum may be able to prevent all types of child sexual violence, but I think for a large proportion of Australians who are enacting this sort of violence out of entitlement, we can really counteract that kind of mainly male entitlement to those sort of things and counteract the type of images they're seeing in pornography and these sort of things. So from that Instagram post only two and a half years ago to those changes from the federal education ministers last year, how are you involved in this monumental change now? Chanel, if you can give us some perspective on that. Like, wh how are you involved in this now? Are you overseeing any of these education materials or a consultant? There's a few ways. So I still work very closely with the government in different areas. I sit on kind of like reference panels. There's a $77 million, $77 million consent education implementation package that is going to be rolled out over the next few years and just kind of advising on how that could potentially best be used, things like that. My organisation, Teachers Consent, is also going to receive government funding next year, which is very exciting. Congratulations. Thank you. So that will evolve from the website to other things? Yeah, so the purpose of that funding is two main things. One is to create consent education social media resources for 16 plus year olds. So it's basically the Instagram that we already have. It almost has like 30,000 followers at the moment but I think 88% of them are female followers or something like that. So we're trying to expand to get this sort of information on young boys' screens, take a strengths-based approach, talk about things like redefining masculinity to like more healthy versions, explicit you know, messaging about maybe myths that they see in pornography or sort of stuff that you hope that they scroll and stop and kind of just save and read later or take in their own time. Um, and then the other part of that is a youth advisory committee that we're hoping will continue to kind of like inform the work we do and work with government. 
but also every single person who works at Teachers Consent or volunteers at Teachers Consent is under the age of 30. So I feel like we're very youth youth led anyway. <laughs> Excellent. And I congratulations, I need to say, on your recent appointment by Julia Giller. Can you tell us about those opportunities that you have chairing this this global institute? It's very impressive. Uh, and what that opens up for you and also I suppose for the work you're doing here. What's what's your next steps there? Yeah, so I feel incredibly lucky to have this role. So the Global Institute for Women's Leadership, I was actually born out of King's College in London, which is where I technically live half the time. So it is also very convenient that they have a campus at ANU because this is also where I live half the time. And the Global Youth Committee is honestly like the people on it are just incredible and getting to work with them and hear what they're doing and support them in kind of any way we can. I guess the idea of the committee was to create a more two-way relationship between the type of like policy work and research work that the institute does and the needs of young people. So, for example, it's the Global Institute for Women's Leadership, but leadership is exhibited in very different ways for young people versus a more kind of like traditional neoliberal, like white version of kind of like CEO boss (laughs) sort of thing. Um, More collaborative or...? Yeah, more collaborative and then also the industries that young people often find themselves in. So, for example, if we're on the topic of, I guess, sexual violence or sexual harassment, lots of young people's first jobs out of school are often in hospitality and that kind of environment. Also, there's like power imbalances, there's obviously wage dependency that comes into that, different types of kind of sexual harassment and assault versus more corporate environments where it feels as though there's like a stronger line. So, I guess that's just an example of the sort of things that may be input into this And hearing about what young people are passionate about, understanding emerging trends that are going on either in Australia or the UK and are they the same, are they different, is happening on the other side six months later. So yeah, and also just creating a space for young people to meet and work together and for them to all amplify each other as well. No, I was looking at uh, your Instagram post on this last night actually (laughs) and how you got to choose these people. What a a fantastic privilege. I mean, does this mean that this is really becoming a bit of a worldwide movement? Uh, is that what you're hoping? That people, that because they are from around the world, aren't they? And they'll take this sort of consent education in a culturally appropriate way back to where they live? Yeah, so this goes beyond just consent education, the type of things that people in this committee are interested in. A lot of them are, you know, very interested in climate justice or like law reform for child incarceration or Indigenous and First Nations rights, all different things. And I guess the idea is that we have this committee in Australia in the APEC region and then also in the process of establishing one based in the UK and Europe and then hopefully they'll also interact with each other as well as their kind of cohorts. And you you did touch on the research that you're doing and the comparisons between the UK and Australia. And what have you found in that international context? Is Australia, how are we doing compared to the UK or to other countries in this consent space? I think in the consent space, in terms of our actual education, our actual education curriculum, I think we're ahead of the UK in that we have consent mandatory now, whereas in the UK it's not mandatory. However, what I've noticed, and this might be a bias observation, because in the UK I pretty much exclusively work with independent schools in the private sector, but it feels as though schools in the UK are much more committed to ensuring this isn't kind of like a one-off conversation or just like a tick box for a class. They pretty much all have like a head of pastoral care or a head of well-being. I'm not actually sure if that's mandated, but it seems to be the case because every school I work with in the UK has someone in that sort of role. And it just means that 
you go into a school, you work with them, and then you feel quite confident that this work is going to carry on, and you know, they reach out to you a few months later, or they're like, hey, can I post what you just posted on Teacher's Consent? Can I use that in class today? Like, And you know the conversation keeps going, whereas what I find in Australia is it still kind of feels a bit tick-boxy. Maybe it's because it's newer, maybe it's because the resources aren't there to have a single person take on that responsibility from within the school. Um, but also in terms of like culture and rates of sexual violence, it's extremely comparable. And when I speak to young girls, 13, 14, 15, 16, it's the same kind of thing that I feel like I experienced as an Australian growing up. So I think it is very culturally similar. Isn't it interesting that even that far away, very similar issues that you're confronting? Well, yeah, I actually found... So part of my research dissertation was looking at how the colonial impact, the fact that basically private schools in Australia were a colonial import, like they were taken from the public school system in the UK, brought over here and scaled and they're traditionally male only spaces that have, you know, maintained quite strict power structures in terms of um, race, in terms of gender, in terms of class and it is really interesting to look at how that has translated out here and it also feels in the UK there's been this massive domino movement to move pretty much all schools to co-ed. So all these kind of like traditionally elite institutions that were male only are now co-ed, which also could be a reason for these kind of well-being staff trying to, you know, make that transition easier for the girls coming into that sort of environment. And it feels like Australia is still a bit behind in that. And we do have the highest proportion of single sex education institutions in high income countries, which I think is quite interesting. That is interesting indeed. And speaking about your incredible book, uh, Consent Laid Bare, uh, there were just a couple of aspects there, of course, that I found quite interesting and wanted to highlight today. But particularly, you talked about the importance of teaching kids or certainly everyone being more open about learning how to name body parts. Uh, Can you explain really why that's so crucial in this issue of consent? I think that specifically for younger people who are being victims of um, child sexual abuse being perpetrated by adults is, or anyone I guess, is it can be very hard for them to testify or speak up both in terms of shame and then also practical reasons if they can only say like all my private parts or like my thing or whatever they get told to kind of it puts a taboo and shame around the topic and whilst it's very important to emphasize to young people that you know these parts are private and they're their own it's really important to equip them with language because language can be very powerful if we're teaching them vulva if we're teaching them testicles if they're teaching them clitoris whatever it is it could kind of make or break the prosecution of a perpetrator of pedophilia and also alleviate that sort of shame for the young people to feel as though they've done something wrong because they didn't keep their private parts private. So is that part of this education now that, that's being rolling out and demystifying these these names, I suppose? Yeah, I actually think it's in the national curriculum now to name body parts, which is, yeah, I think such a simple way because people often hear that consent education is being taught to five-year-olds and they're like, oh my God, freaking out. And it's like, no, we're teaching names of body parts. We're teaching how to seek permission, how to deny permission, how to accept the rejection of permission very importantly and how to seek help when needed and encouraging them to speak to adults in their life or whoever they feel necessary to report these sort of things. Oh, that's fantastic. I mean, I suppose education is just the start. I wonder how we get grandma and the aunties and uncles, though, uh, to be more comfortable talking about 
clitoris and penis and vagina and yeah is there um, is that the next stage or it's very focused on education at the moment but how do we bring about cultural change? I think we do definitely need a whole of community approach in this but I think it's also looking at where resources can go and make such a large impact at the moment so I don't know grandparents aunties that's like kind of a bit bit hard big ask to ask people to go out of their way for kids <laughs> that aren't even their own but definitely mm-hmm. Students, the school system is an incredible way of accessing large amounts of young people at once and also changing those cultures so that it's not just one family or one child hearing this sort of information, but it's being backed up by the way that their um, peers act and understand it. And then also their parents and then their educators. And I think I think whilst we strive towards cultural change in this where sexual violence becomes an anomaly again especially in this type of peer-on-peer teenage sexual abuse unfortunately we will need some time but more than anything I think we need people to be willing to be active agents for change in that space because I think it's very easy to get complacent with these concepts of like rape culture where it's hard to for people to understand that even if you're not necessarily the one perpetrating explicit violence on another you could be easily upholding these sort of cultures or ideas or attitudes that enable those more explicit acts of violence to occur without accountability. How long do you think it might change before we see that change in attitudes? What you mentioned there just made me think of a a great line I saw in your bio where you describe the situation now pretty succinctly as that our attitudes, cultural norms and our failing legal system have essentially decriminalised rape in Australia. Yeah, so I do think we have decriminalised rape in Australia um, because of those exact things. Uh, The conviction rate of sexual assault is 1.5% in Australia. And when you think about how few cases go to court, how few cases get reported, how few people have an understanding of sexual violence to be able to understand that what happened to them actually counts as a crime. It's, you know, keep zooming out. I think that we have a better understanding about types of sexual violence, types of sexual violence that meet stereotypes. You know, if the perpetrator is intentional or sadistic or they plan their attack or they're a stranger um, or I think we also have although still very many problematic understandings and narratives around the issue but also pedophilic forms of sexual violence I think there is a more like a better understood way but this kind of stereotypical 16 year old teenage boy gets his girlfriend you know drunk to make her easier to make her say yes more likely and those sort of forms of like an individual feeling entitled to another person's body, taking advantage of them. I think we have really pervading societal expectations and attitudes around these sort of topics and around gender and around sexuality that mean that they really go to like pretty much no, there's no kind of accountability for those. It's become unfortunately a part of womanhood for many. And opening up a bit of a Pandora's box, but what about the effect of porn in this space? We've already been talking about it so much this morning. It's so pervasive. Uh, but particularly from your pe- your feminist perspective, do you think consent education can go some way to countering that? It's just been such an incredible rise in the accessibility and uh, even the, the, the harsh nature of porn in recent years. Yes, yeah, so the national curriculum does now address porn literacy in like the most minor possible way ever because... But it was like a massive win to get the word pornography in the national curriculum. But 
it is put in under like media literacy section and comes in in year 10, I think, which is far too late as again, every single person in this room knows. It's very hard to convince people how early these conversations need to happen because they are unbelievably awkward and it's very jarring. And also I think the fact that, I mean, even for me, um, being like probably one of the youngest people in this room, when I grew up, we still had like a home computer and that was in the kitchen. It's very different now the way young people engage with their devices and access this sort of content. Oh, I love talking about pornography because mm-hmm. I'm so passionate about it um, from a feminist perspective mm-hmm. because it's not completely like trendy to make this sort of argument, but I think that it has been a massive ho- hoodwink of the patriarchy to define pornography as like something that is empowering especially for women under this kind of like idea of sex positivity and sexual liberation when in fact it has a supply chain that is riddled with human trafficking that disproportionately affects women and children and it also depicts consistent violence against women and they often have neutral or positive reactions to these sort of violent acts being depicted against them. So for just so many reasons on the obvious and the fact that that sort of content is so dictating and coercive to shaping young people's sexual landscapes, it is currently the main form of sex education in Australia is pornography, which is really terrifying. But then also in a feminist era that is supposedly defined by intersectionality, I do really question how we've failed to address that the exploitation in this sort of supply chain is one that is extremely classed and not just gendered and also on the topic of child sexual abuse even if you are watching you know an ethical video or you know a one that an anomaly that maybe shows consent on a mainstream porn website companies like Pornhub have consistently aired videos of child sexual abuse and they're up there right now so watching anything on that website is profiting a company that is displaying and again profiting off the sexual abuse of minors. It's. I mean, to me, there's so much is put on the parents to you know try and screen this behaviour. But is there a failure really of government regulation in this space as well that it's all crept up so quickly? Yeah, I think it's so hard because I was actually speak. I, this, this is the line of my book that I was speaking to someone about the idea of banning pornography and the fact that that would just upskill young people on how to you know set up VPNs or like hack servers or whatever. Like this content will be accessed. I think. I think when I advocate for porn literacy, I'm talking about the more obvious stuff, seeing like, oh, you know, this doesn't exhibit consent and this often shows the degradation of women and like, you know, blah, 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 all that sort of thing. But I also just think from a kind of human-centered perspective and teaching empathy, I think we need to, it's quite a hard thing to do, but I guess have conversations with young people. Maybe this is something more for teenagers rather than super young kids about being kind of like an ethical consumer in that way and the fact that again just like as a feminist knowing what I know I and what I believe in pornography is not something I would ever want to access because there's no way of telling if someone is consenting or not to an act and I think the more that we raise our young people with empathy for women and all sort of marginalized groups the more we make them maybe privy to these sort of things it's I also make this analogy in my book I personally eat meat, but when I eat meat, I understand that that is not a great thing for the cow. It is an ethical choice that I make and I still consume that. And I think we need to make the consumption of pornography not just kind of like a default, this is what I do, this is what's normal, but something that is a 
ethical consideration because there's also lots of mental health effects from pornography, especially for young men in the, again, in my book I talk about post-nut clarity and how that's like such a joke that goes around on like TikTok and things like that, which essentially means the mind clarity that you get when you've ejaculated. And it's kind of a joke that men make often in an insulting way to women to say like, oh, after we had sex, I realise I regret it and that I'm not actually into her or she's not actually hot or whatever. Um, but post-nut clarity is actually a real thing because when you are aroused, your disgust response in your brain lowers, which means that you can engage in and also get off to content that um, would disgust you in your, or that could disgust you in your normal state. And that's because humans, in order to be intimate with each other, need to have a lower disgust response because it is like quite gr- like kissing is like quite gross objectively. But <laughs> but if you're like attracted to someone, then it's not. Um, and it means that it causes lots of mental health issues for especially young boys who often watch clips of things that they wouldn't usually, you know, like or think is okay in their usual life but um, they do and then they have regret about it after because they've seen themes of violence or racism or incest um, or child abuse which are all very common themes on porn websites disguised as other things like you know stepsister porn and mother son son-in-law porn or teacher student porn and all these different things. I have, uh, on an encouraging level, I have noticed that there has been consent rolling out in in more regulations and legislation, which is good. I noticed that the Queensland government just recently announced it's finally updating its stealthing laws. Is that another area of concern for you, those different legislative boundaries between the states on that? Yeah, so the most recent campaign I've been working on has been to criminalise stealthing Australia-wide and we essentially only have WA to go now because the Northern Territory has committed it and Queensland's just finally implemented, which is incredible. Um, So stealthing is the non-consensual removal of a condom, um, in case anyone doesn't know. And for me, that's a very prime example of a normalised form of sexual violence. How, again, an entitlement to another person's body and disregard for their body autonomy and their feelings can very easily result in an act of rape without them even being entirely conscious of the weight of those actions. And I think the harmonisation of consent laws is definitely something that's being consistently spoken about. There was a Senate inquiry into it recently. There's definitely been a push for it. I mean, it makes sense. We're one country. People travel between places all the time. And when we were pushing for the stealth and criminalisation, we hosted a roundtable with attorney generals and shadow attorney generals around the country and then invited survivors to come along and speak about it. And one of the survivors of stealthing was talking about how she was stealthed and then when she Googled the laws, and she was in Victoria at the time, found out that it wasn't criminal there at the time, but it was criminal in the ACT, which I think she was where she went to uni or something. And she was like, how is this fair? That because it happened here, I can't do anything about it. And it gives those mixed messages about consent, doesn't it, on a, a legislative level? I mean, it's hard um, for governments to keep up, but it shows the importance of that in this space. And I also think legislators hate when I say this because it's not the point, but I think that legislation is an extremely powerful tool for cultural change. And the fact that as part of the national curriculum now that you have to teach the consent laws of the state or territory that you're in, that means that by having still thing criminalized in a state or territory, children need to hear that that counts as a criminal act or that, you know, taking off a condom negates consent and all these different things. So it is really important that we use those laws to set a cultural understanding of what is okay and what isn't okay because it's almost impossible to get convicted of stealthing. 
Well, and, and teenagers are looking for what those boundaries are, aren't they? And legislation provides a pretty good guide on that. Exactly. And it's, I mean, <laughs> teaching like ethics to a teenage boy is like probably not the easiest thing in the world. But <laughs> as someone who tries to do it often, but saying this is illegal is very clear and easy to understand for young people. Chanel, you have achieved so much in such a short time and with COVID complications in the middle of that as well, you know, to contend with. But um, so what what do you think to wrap up, do you think still needs to be done urgently in this space? Uh, if we look at politically, culturally, legislatively, what, what comes to mind? So I think we need consistent laws around the country. I think we need to... And again, I'm sure everyone here agrees with me, but we need to convince policymakers and parents and teachers that explicit conversations about pornography are like absolutely necessary. We need to make sure that pornography is not scapegoated as the only reason for these sort of things. But I think we've got into a place now where governments are ready to have those sort of conversations and understand what that means. I also think we kind of need to zoom back because a lot of the type of rape that I'm talking about occurs because of a rape culture because of the patriarchy, because of these gendered norms, expectations, attitudes, all these things. So something that I would absolutely love Australia to see, and one day I will um, hopefully get behind a campaign whenever the time comes, is mandatory and non-transferable parental leave for men, or paternity leave, because that was that happened in Sweden and the kind of effects on society and gender equality as a whole were massive in that space. And I think we need to start like zooming back when we're looking at this rape culture and breaking down those much more like high level norms in this space so looking at how we can promote gender equality in a holistic way because that will inadvertently make men feel less entitled to the bodies of other people absolutely and uh of, of course your new book consent laid bare are you pleased with how it's received how's it been going yeah i had the most amazing time doing kind of like book tours and um doing events uh, and I've received such beautiful messages from so many people, which has made it very, very lovely to hear people saying it's been very validating for their experiences or kind of described, given them the words to describe these sort of things. I've had great responses saying that they're using it as a tool to take off emotional labor that they often have to do with like new partners or their boyfriend just being like, read this and you can kind of understand my experience as a woman or as a survivor of sexual violence. And I've also had really great responses from men, which is really nice. The last chapter of the book is called Dear Boys and Men, and it's the idea of it is that you kind of pass, if you read the book and you're like, oh, this is great, I wish more men would read it, pass the last chapter on hoping that they have 20 minutes to spare to um, engage in it. And a lot of men have ended up reading the whole book, and I received, yeah, really, I got the cutest message from a 14-year-old boy the other day, being like, I read your book, and like, my school loves Andrew Tate, so I'm going to start a committee about gender equality or something, and I was just like, oh, that makes the whole thing worth it. <laughs> <laughs> that is beautiful. It does show the importance of, I meant to mention before, that there's a, um, a male, a man in your committee, and having um, men involved in these conversations as well, obviously. Yeah. So we had um, 500 applications for that committee and only five of them were men um, and two of them were barely filled in. Um, but that <laughs> man that is on the committee is actually really impressive because I refused to hire but I was literally like, I'm not prioritising a man on this. <laughs> but he's actually incredible and he runs an organisation that tries to prevent um, male violence in WA. So, yeah. Oh, brilliant. <laughs> and on November 1, you're going to address the National Press Club. So we're incredibly lucky to have you here today, straight from London to us and then the National Press Club. What do you hope to achieve there, do you think? Get a bit of more of this on the agenda? Yeah, I think... So the next policy change I'm really keen on 
making is so the way that there's a national curriculum for school like students there's also a curriculum for what teachers have to pass in order to become qualified teachers in Australia and it's called the initial initial teacher education curriculum and but I think that somehow getting in there conversations around all the topics we all work with you know safeguarding how to how to respond to these sort of things how to identify behaviors how to be a transformative teacher in preventing rape culture and promoting healthy attitudes and not just be not just for the PDHP teachers, but also the teachers who are on lunchtime duty, the year coordinators, kind of making it something that is understood as part of a teacher's role in Australia. So I think I, I need to get in a few meetings before that, I believe. I think that might be my like policy that I'll try to drive home, but I haven't written the speech yet. So oh, it's a fantastic opportunity. <laughs> yeah, I'm very excited. Thank well, thank you so much, Chanel. I think it's a good time to open up to the floor. And if you can use the mic, that would be great. Oh, hi. Well, first, thank you. That was such an amazing speech. Um, I just had a question about, well, obviously you mentioned like the rise of like Andrew Tate and those kind of messages. How would you like suggest kind of addressing that in schools? Yeah, it's so tough. And I've even heard from some people or some schools that they've just put like a ban on talking about Andrew Tate because they don't know how to acknowledge these sort of conversations. And I'm like, oh, guess what kids do when you ban something? Um, so it's probably not going to work. But I actually think that... What what young men responding to Andrew Tate taught us is that we don't have enough healthy role models for young men. It's like, how can we blame these young boys for latching onto this, you know, very, like, masculine figure who meets all the kind of, like, three main points of toxic masculinity, you know? It's like, he's very sporty, he's very rich, he's got crazy nice cars, he's, like, he's surrounded by beautiful women the whole time, even if they're human trafficked. Um, and that's being very idolised by these young men while he's, like, telling them, you know, arguably not the worst advice in the world sometimes and then riddling it with, like, extreme misogyny and um, very problematic, like, ideals about being a man. And I think what we need to take a step back and instead of think, like, oh, how dare you, like, you know, why is this 13-year-old boy watching this? Like, you shouldn't and just tell them that they shouldn't do that but thinking how can we supplement that obvious need that Andrew Tate is meeting for these young boys with other sort of role models or other examples of masculinity or other conversations so that they don't feel the need to engage in that. But it is also really hard because it's now become a situation where it's like rebellious to agree with him. Therefore, again, young people will probably be drawn towards that and it kind of contributes to a cycle. Um, I was just thinking about all those testimonies that were coming into you as a 16-year-old and that being quite confronting for anyone, let alone someone who hasn't even finished school. I was just wondering how you looked after yourself at that time and how you continue to look after yourself in this work. Yeah, so also, sorry for context, I was actually doing my master's when the testimonies came in. So I was, how was I, 22 or something, but yeah, same. Still very young. young. Um, And also I had never had any sort of training about how to taken these sort of testimonies. I also read about 6,000 of them in two weeks, which is obviously not a sustainable or healthy amount. I didn't even know what vicarious trauma was until going to therapy a few months later and understanding um, those sort of things. But unfortunately, I think my answer is I basically didn't really take care of myself very well in that time. And the longer I've been out of it, the more I can see the kind of toll that's had on me in terms of my like impact with 
my relationship with like even just men in general to be honest and then my own personal sex life the way I speak to my friends about these sort of things like conversations that I used to maybe think were just like funny or like what oh I was watching friends on the plane last night and I was literally like this is so problematic on so many levels <laughs> so just every single thing kind of being a red flag but now I don't read testimonies very often anymore I still often get them come through my inbox on Instagram but it's not very like productive necessarily to read them or try to um, be someone's support network and I try to focus on like structural conversations and change but yeah it's a very tough thing to do um, and to work in. Hi and thanks for your work. Um, you, you do some work in Canberra and um, most recently I heard a senior male politician use the closet terms of uh, angry person to describe a female politician in a derogatory way for political purposes. Um, you're going to be in the hornet's nest there from time to time, I imagine. What strategies do you think you can adapt that might um, help the male politicians understand the difference between healthy and unhealthy criticism of female colleagues? <laughs> um, very good question. Very hard to change. I think it's become very apparent in the last few years that the culture inside Parliament House is potentially one of the most like toxic workplaces in the world. I have lots of friends who are kind of advisors who work in there and, you know, beyond the sort of like sexism and harassment and comments like that that are obviously very loaded. Um, just, you know, in terms of the working hours and like what's kind of defined as success in there is hard. I think it's... I'm going to come back to that answer, but I'm going to take a, a step to that question. I'm going to take a step back for a second. Before, when I was talking about how schools in the UK, in Australia, were like modelled off this UK system, and then also kind of like amplified across Australia, in that process, we also—it's quite boring—but in like the 1800s, this principal called Thomas Arnold basically redefined masculinity, and then all the schools in the UK copied him, and then all the Australian schools copied that and it very much like put sport at like the center of these sort of things and ambition and success defined by very neoliberal terms and I think the school system in Australia and the eliteness of it also creates a very direct power funnel to these institutions that are things like Parliament House. Parliament House is very male dominated, it is very white dominated, it is very um, elite dominated, you know we've had more prime ministers go to certain schools in Sydney that are private versus like female prime ministers. We've only had one female prime minister. And I think because of that, it makes this culture so fundamentally ingrained in that, that it would almost be impossible to change. And also I think the way that politicians succeed in certain, especially at certain, um, if they've been there for a while, those sort of attributes that are required to succeed as a politician aren't usually very conducive to being particularly empathetic towards marginalised groups or people around them and things like that. I think that there have been conversations about sexism in Parliament House. I think that when we reflect on how, for example, Julia Gillard was treated when she was the Prime Minister of Australia, you can really see the stark difference between commentary and people's reactions to her and things like that. So maybe there is change in that space. But I think it is going to be one of the hardest institutions to change because it is, it is inherently a very old system power structure um, that is, was set up that way. Thanks, Chanel. I really enjoyed that interview. I'm really keen to understand in the work that you've been doing, 
Have you, I mean, obviously um, building consent into the curriculum itself or the syllabus is really, really important, but I'm interested to hear your thoughts about how you engage parents and the school community in that discourse. Yeah, there definitely needs to be more parent and teacher training in this space because I also think, um, again, if we're like zooming back and looking at concepts of rape culture, so often it's parents and teachers who are the ones upholding this with absolutely no malice and no intention to, but because that was how they were socialised or taught these things. So like prime example that I every single time without fail I go into a school, the girls talk to me about is your skirt is too short, it's distracting for the male teachers, which is completely different to your skirt is too short, it's against school uniform policy. And those just like very minor sentences that completely embed this idea in young women that it's their responsibility to not attract attention from the male teachers at the school who are grown adults, um, how that kind of like normalises the objectification of young people. So I think conversations like that are so necessary, but also... It can go either way. There can be some parents and teachers that are really keen to learn these sort of things and will willingly take it on board and can be, like, you know, educated or upskilled or trained further. But then there's also going to be people who are very much stuck in their ways and the same problem we have with addressing rape culture in any context, hesitant to understand how they may have been a part of that. So, again, like, you know, I'm not saying this was a bad thing. I'm not... This is not like me blaming her any way, shape or form, but like my mum would always say like, oh, don't wear that, you'll get raped. And she meant it with the best intentions and it's fair enough as a mother to be concerned of, you know, a teenager looking a certain way because she understands how the world works and the reality of the world. But again, the language around that, instead of saying, you know, don't wear that, there are really bad men out there, changing the kind of narrative away from that sort of victim blaming. So yeah, teacher education training, extremely important, but also hard to even help someone understand how like the tiniest little throwaway comments kind of contribute to this sort of ultimate culture. Thanks, Chanel. Um, I'm you're completely on board with everything you're saying, particularly around pornography and the impact it's having on, on young people. I wonder though, I agree with you that there's an absence of, of um, men for young men to engage with and to, to want to exemplify. So in what other ways do you think we can actually engage young men and older men as agents of change? Mm. I think that there's massive opportunity in the school system for... Because I think the thing with... I I can say this because we're a room of adults, so I can be harsh, whereas often when I'm speaking to young boys, I feel as though I often have to cater to the male ego a lot when I'm having these conversations. But... um, I think the thing with boys, like young boys is they want to be right. Like they want to be confident and they will be, they will say the right things if they're taught to say the right things and if they think it's cool to say the right things. So there's very much this idea of kind of like a one-up culture that often makes young boys in school do horrific things. You know, for example, image-based abuse, which often, you know, is also child pornography or like self-generated child pornography materials those like group chats that get created where like they send them in as, as if it's like a trophy wall that's kind of them like one-upping each other so it's like well how can we switch the culture to make it so that like being respectful and being empathetic and being consensual is actually a cool thing and I think in a school where we have such a hierarchy of age empowering those older students to be agents of change for the younger students is so powerful because you don't really care what like I mean you do care what teachers and parents say obviously 
very important but not when you're trying to like navigate yourself and like define what's cool yourself but if you have the year 12 boy when you're in year seven talking about how you can be really respectful to women or talking about how it's you know really cool to call out sexist behavior or if you're at the bus stop and someone makes a like cat call and he's like oh that's not cool bro that would just like change things way more than a parent or teacher kind of ever could and I think the thing is young boys do want to have that responsibility they do want to show those leadership skills and exhibit that in a healthy way but when we don't help them with directing them in that way and giving them the opportunities to become leaders for their peers or for the boys younger than them, they can very quickly get like lost and end up in group chats that are not doing the right thing. I work with schools. I have 60 schools that I advise and, and work to facilitate interagency cooperation to support students. I'm curious as to whether there was research in schools with and I kind of feel like we're being really gender biased here, talking always about the boys. But in terms of um, what the culture has been like over the last, has there been a shift? And do we have research to back that up over the last five or six years since we've been trying to put this message out about really changing this culture? So... I might be wrong, but as far as I know, no, we haven't started measuring the impact of kind of culture. We do have Anne Rose's behavioural, we do have the NCAS Community Attitudes Reports, which um, the most recent one was really disheartening because pretty much everything got worse except understandings of consent, but also speaks to how much cultural conversations and, um, you know, media can impact these sort of things, except... um, the Human Rights Commission is actually going to start alongside the announcement of mandated consent education. Morrison government gave the Human Rights Commission $5 million to start measuring these sort of understandings, which I hope will be a kind of more clear-cut sort of thing. And then pretty much, I guess, almost all sort of government-funded interventions usually have some sort of evaluation mechanism involved. But, I'm yeah, I'll be working on the Human Rights Commission survey, um, and I think that will hopefully be a good way to, like, benchmark and understand if this is actually working. It, what we need to do better, what we're missing, and it will also distinguish by kind of sector. So, like, you know, maybe the state sector is doing like significantly better than private schools. It's like what's influencing that and changing that sort of thing. And I'm also really excited for that because I think if we do come out of that with really good results, then Australia can speak to the rest of the world about implementing this sort of change with that sort of data there and evidence based approach. Thank you. Thanks, Chanel. Um, So you're obviously doing this really amazing high-level work sort of uh, on policy and legislation. Um, Just for, I guess, the people in the room, I think we're a mix of those, you know, informing program and policy and sort of practitioners, educators working directly with young people. Um, I'm just wondering if we could sort of bring it way down to if we're having a conversation with uh, either a young person who's, you know, at risk of or has perpetrated sexual violence, or on the other hand, those who have been victims of sexual violence, what are the key messages that you really want them to be hearing? Mm. It's really tough because I do not envy you guys because I like any time I am in a school setting, I find it so overwhelming and um, such a, like it's very easy to talk about the policies and the structures and the whatever, but when it comes down to it, like where the real um, intricacies in every single interaction like this are, it can be so difficult, I think. I think that, and again, I think everyone in this room probably inherently has this, but being very empathetic in the way that these conversations are had. And then I also think what 
The problem is we have systems in place that mean that the things I want to say can't actually happen. So, for example, I actually think that not all cases of peer-on-peer sexual violence do require, should require mandatory reporting to police because I think the criminal system often re-traumatizes victims and ends up with pretty much no accountability for perpetrators. And I've just heard way too many times that, you know, a young girl will hear, hear me speak, tell a teacher something, suddenly it's with the police and in their final exams they're doing like police interviews while the boy is still sitting next to them in mass class. And it just like breaks my heart every single time. But of course the process is that you have to go through that. Um, I would much rather there be alternative reporting options and also restorative justice options or mediation available for um, especially people under 18 but all people who are victims of sexual violence and I think the I don't know it's such a hard question I actually don't know how to answer it because I think there's such a line to toe between assuming the perpetrator has perpetrated because of again, like a lack of education, um, entitlement, ignorance, or a disregard for a misunderstanding of consent. How we toe that line between holding accountability and trying to prevent reoffense or prevent other peers from pre promoting that same behavior, whilst also acknowledging the scale of the impact that that could have on the victim, even if it wasn't intentional by the perpetrator. If we could thank Chanel Contos, thank you so much for coming today. Appreciate it. And I also just really want to thank everyone in this room for the work you do. It's honestly, yeah, like really inspiring. And um, yeah, you're all incredible. So thank you. And that's the end of this episode of Keeping Kids Safe, a Bright Futures podcast by the Daniel Morecambe Foundation. Make sure you go to the links in our show notes for resources and support. Remember, parents and carers, you've got this. You can subscribe to this podcast on your favourite podcast provider and give us a like on your socials. And if you found this helpful, please share far and wide and rate and review it too so more people can find us. Even if it's just telling a friend about this podcast, that's great. We want to empower as many parents and carers as possible each and every episode. You can support the work of the Daniel Morecambe Foundation by visiting our website and donating or call us for more information on 1300 326 435. Thank you for never forgetting, Daniel. You guys are very much part of the solution. Please complete the survey. Thank you for listening. Talk to you again next episode.